Now, on this Invest Talk podcast, Justin Klein listens to your questions. Hi, Stephen Justin. This is Jeffrey calling from El Paso, Texas. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on Vodafone, ticker Victor, Oscar, Delta. And provides unbiased answers. All right, looking at Vodafone, yield about 6.2% currently based on the current price. Now, remember, this is a foreign name, so they actually pay twice a year, not quarterly. Invest Talk, over 32 million downloads and counting. Your participation makes it unique. 888-99-CHART. This podcast is produced by KPP Financial. Steve Peasley, President. KPP Financial. Independent thinking, shared success. And now today's podcast. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, September 2nd, 2021 edition of Invest Talk. And Labor Day is just around the corner, and uh, Monday markets are closed, so just be prepared for a best of caller question podcast. But today we are live, four to five Pacific time, and ready to take your calls right now. So if you have questions, don't hesitate to reach out. 888 chart, 888-992-4278. That's how you can get your question to me, and I can give you my perspective and the data that I have uh, in front of me. And uh, I'm going to operate as these calls come in with my mission statement, which is always independent thinking and shared success. So I'm not CNBC, I'm not Kramer, I'm not going to bang any bells and whistles and and yell and scream and 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 pace around the room, uh, mainly because I'm uh, tied to a, a headset and and uh, and my board. But the the point is, I am here to give you the facts, all without bias. Whether I'm talking about the market, a particular strategy, a stock, a sector, whatever it is. That's what I'm here to do. Now, I'm Justin Klein. And of course, I encourage you to contact me with your finance and investment questions. And you can contact me right now during our live stream program, 4 to 5 Pacific time, just like every weekday. Or if you're listening after hours, you can still leave a message on our anytime voice bank, 888-992-4278. So let's get right to our first listener question now. Hey, Steve or Justin. My name's John from Atlanta. I just had a real estate question. We moved into our house about three years ago. We paid 250000 for it, and now houses in the neighborhood are selling for three eighty to $400. i am just wondering, do you guys foresee the market continuing to go up, or is it going to go down? We had talked about selling, possibly, and making some money off selling the home, maybe leasing or renting for the next year. Just had a question yet to see if you guys continue to see the market going up, or if it's going to fall out here, <laughs> here soon. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Well, the first issue is I don't know where you live. Uh, I think every market is going to have its own dynamics. Uh, real estate is local. Uh, there are broad trends that can change uh, the, the real estate dynamics. Mainly, it's interest rates. If mortgage rates go up, they typically go up uh, across the board, across the country, and that can have an impact on every market. But supply and demand dynamics are very localized, especially in today's environment where there uh, are various levels of building in different regions. There's various levels of demand based on uh, remote work, the the, the co- underlying cost of the the homes in that particular area. You know, the the gateway kind of second tier markets that typically had modest uh, gains have kind of had a whoosh higher over the past eighteen months, and uh, I think those markets will stay relatively strong. Another factor is the rent and 
and mortgage moratoriums that are are coming due. Uh, some cities have been very very reticent to allow any uh, foreclosures, and there could be a wave of foreclosures and and uh, evictions in those areas. Others have ha- allowed a steady stream of the, the, the evictions and moratoriums. So everyone, I'm oh, sorry, evictions and uh, uh, yeah, I guess evictions, in, if whether it's a mortgage or a rent. So it's very localized. Now, when it comes to your situation, you bought a house. It sounds like it's one you live in. I wouldn't worry about it. Too many people get caught up in this in their own home is, oh, how am I going to make money? And should I sell and now rent for a little while? Well, if you're thinking about selling in the, the, the next few years, probably a good idea to get it on the market and, and start that process. Uh, but you need to have a, a plan of where you're going to live. Um, and I wouldn't be trying to time the market in that sense that oh, I'm going to sell now and go rent for two or three years. And then suddenly I'm going to have a better deal in three years. There's no guarantee of that, especially with the broader government. Uh, it's it's a political football now, the, co- the, the value of homes. And so they're going to do what they can to make sure you don't have an 08. They have the, that memory of 08 is, is fairly fresh. I know we're 13 years on. But it's still fairly fresh in their minds. And so uh, allowing some sort of big housing bust that I don't think is, uh, is likely uh, because not only are the conditions very different, but also government policy is going to closely watch that market and make sure there isn't a huge drop in that market. So uh, as long as you can afford it and you enjoy living in your home, you're happy with holding that for a long period of time, I would just stay in it. Let's go to Jacob in Chicago looking at Visa. Hello? Jacob, you there? Yeah, can you hear me? Yeah, yeah. Do you own Visa or are you looking to buy it? Oh, yeah. So I own some uh, shares of Visa, but I was just looking at the yearly chart. and It's looking like it's getting close to the 200-day moving average. I was thinking maybe is it a good time to kind of load up a little bit more, you know? Um. Well, you know, I, I don't think so, uh, mainly because I still think it's fairly overvalued. Uh, now, it is at support. Technically, it did it 200. It was on a pretty strong volume today. Um, but you're still trading at uh, 43 times earnings. And, and I think there's a longer term uh, a risk for this market in the crypto space and moving towards more uh, moving money through things like Venmo and PayPal and, and, and other uh, networks besides just uh, Visa or in MasterCard as kind of the two dominant credit card processors. And now there's getting more and more ways to transmit value. Uh, and I think longer term, that's going to be an issue. Now, when does the market kind of wake up to that? When does that kind of hit that, uh, that exponential growth on the other forms of payments? I'm not sure. Uh, but I just don't love the, 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 uh, the multiples that these Visa and MasterCard uh, tend to trade at. So Short term, technically, yes, I do think there's a bounce uh, in in the short term, but I, I just don't, don't love these businesses at these multiples. So I'm still not excited about it, even though it's 10 percent, 11 percent off to 52 week high. It's still trading at pretty high multiples. So I'm passing on Visa. Now, my focus point today is based on the story behind this question. What is the gap between investor returns and total returns? Now, investor returns, also known as dollar weighted returns, often differ from reported total returns because of timing of cash inflows and outflows. And the great thing about this study is it just doesn't look at broad 
mutual fund. It actually looks at all types of mutual funds. So it's not just broad equity funds. They're looking at bond funds, uh, allocation funds, different types of sector funds, uh, alternative funds. And there's some lessons to be learned from the data. And hopefully you can take some of these lessons uh, to heart and build them into your decision-making process. So we're going to go over that. I also want to look back at history. And I'm a big fan of history. It's uh, it's one of my favorite uh, subjects, and, and I'm always reading about it and learning about it. And I've known this for a while, but I want to go over uh, a similar period in time uh, that we are in today, mainly post-World War II, when it comes to our financial situation as a country, uh, as a globe, really, and the tools that were implemented back then to kind of dig the world financial system out of the hole. And it looks like they're trying to execute that strategy once again. A little bit different color, but very similar vein. And I want to I I go over that and explain to you how to position your portfolio accordingly if they continue on this path, which is mainly financial repression, but uh, with a little bit different flavor. We're going to go over that as well. And then lastly, Tether. I want to break down Tether. It looks like a Ponzi scheme, and we're going to really get into uh, the details if we can. But ultimately, I want to know what is on your mind. 888 chart 888 is how you get through and ask your question. Let's look at the market today. The S&P was up 12 points, a very modest update, about 0.3%. You had the NASDAQ. That was, let me pull that up, C-O-M-P-Q, there we go, up 21 points, a little over 1%, very, very modest update there, NYSE, same thing, 80 points, about half a percent, and that was really driven by the small caps, small caps, the Russell, that was that had a good day, about 16, almost 17 points, up about two-thirds of 1%, so uh, you're seeing uh, that strength there, the value side of the market definitely did better than the the growth side of the market you had energy up about uh, two and a half percent today the energy sector as a whole uh, and then you have uh, things like sma it's a semiconductor market that was pretty much flat really uh, didn't do a whole lot today and so i just don't see uh, i see momentum building here on the uh, the value side of the market and the growth side of the market looks to be waning a bit as we as the dollar weakens and interest rates slowly grind higher it was flat today but um, we are off the lows from july so that's where we are right now in the markets and we're heading into a quick break and the phone lines are open for you so give invest talk a call at 888-99 chart summer's moving fast The Labor Day holiday is already on the horizon, and you can't afford to lose focus. So have your finance and investment questions ready and call Justin Klein now. InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Hey, Steve or Justin, I hope you guys are doing well. This is Jay from New York. I had a question about S-Y-N, Sunny Yellow Nancy. It's called the Synthetic Biologics. I have a couple of shares in this stock, and they had this sort of board of directors voting. And one of the questions that they had had to do with an increasing authorized shares. Now, their current cash is about $74 million, total liabilities of about $2 million. 
I don't understand why this company would decide to increase their authorized shares. So if you could just have give me any ideas on this or possibly any information regarding why a company would do that and what would be the effects to the shareholders. Thank you. Love the show. Take care. Well, what they're discussing, this is very common for this type of company, which is a uh, biotech, a money-losing biotech company, and they, they need cash. And when they're, they're burning cash, they need to access capital uh, from time to time. And oftentimes, they approve a shelf uh, offering, meaning that whenever they feel they need capital, they can go, they can just issue shares and go sell them out there in the marketplace. And that sounds like what they approved, and it will dilute shareholders. And you can see that with the amount of shares uh, outstanding, 66 million currently, they only had 6 million shares outstanding in 2018. So you're talking about 11x increase in the shares outstanding from 2018 to today, Uh, still no revenues, burning a little bit less capital, but basically the same amount since 2018. Uh, and you might look at the earnings per share and it's going to say, oh, well, they're losing less money. 2018, they lost $4 a share. Uh, 2019, they lost $0.98 cents a share. 2020, only 66 This year, they're only supposed to lose $0.18 cents a share. The problem is that the share count is going up dramatically. And so it might look like they're getting closer towards profitability, but it's just the fact that they are issuing so many shares. And that's bad for you, the shareholder. Now, technically, the chart looks fine. It's, it's spiked up uh, in early 2021. And uh, it's, it's kind of returned to the 50 cent share uh, a price that it was pre uh, when, you know, when that broke out. Uh, and it's really about when can their products hit market. And I'm not sure. It looks like it's a late-stage company. Uh, they make uh, some sort of drug to treat irritable bowel syndrome. And whether that gets approved by the FDA, I'm not sure. That's something you have to look at. But definitely more and more shares being issued is going to dilute you, the shareholder, and that's never a good thing. Now you're listening to it. Now you're listening to Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. And for investors, the need to remain vigilant in this market never ends. And that's why I'm here to answer your finance and investment questions. So we're taking your calls live at 888 chart Invest Talk is here to help. And when you download the free Invest Talk podcasts, don't forget to rate and review. The phone lines are open, 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Robert in San Jose, looking at BLK, which is BlackRock, correct? Yes, that's correct. Okay. Do you own it or looking to buy it? So I had a question. What, uh, I was wanting to buy some shares. I've been looking at the graph, the trends, and their earnings, and uh it looked like maybe something I could do for long term. Okay. Um, well, BlackRock is the largest asset manager in the world. They own iShares, for example. Uh, clearly, they're they're well connected within government, and and so their status as uh, the, the largest fund manager is probably uh, not in jeopardy. Uh, they have strong profitability. 
Uh, I think the biggest worry is whenever the indexing bubble kind of bursts, uh, what happens with with, with them. Um, but their profitability is consistent. Uh, their their leverage is the lowest it's been in years, and their return on assets is the highest it's been in years. So that's certainly a positive. Um, they're not overvalued or undervalued. They're probably uh, near value. Value is probably a little bit lower, probably around uh, 850 to 900. Uh, now it's at 950, so it's modestly overvalued. Uh, but if you are looking to allocate towards the, uh, the the asset management space and you believe that the more and more money will continue to be allocated towards index funds, this is the area that you'd want to be. Perfect. Thank you. No problem. Thanks for the call, Robert. Now, when people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes, we'd like to thank them for, the, for their courtesy by getting to their question quickly. So let's go to Micah. And it says, I'd like to know what you think of select quote SLQT is the symbol SLQT. And I bought some shares of this after the big dip last week. It went from 14 down to 8. The recent volatility makes me a bit nervous, but it has since recovered to about 950. Is this an overly risky stock that I should get out of? While I'm ahead, or should I double down and buy more? Well, it typically does not uh, pay off to uh, average lower. That's something that um, most traders eventually will learn. But what SelectQuote does is they're a broker for insurance products, uh, senior health insurance, life and auto, home insurance policies, etc. Earnings have been going up. It's, it is a recent IPO. So it IPO'd in June of last year, it looks like. So a little over a year since it's uh, been public. Uh, earnings supposed to be a dollar for 2022 and 2023 $1.48, trading at eleven twenty. So it looks relatively undervalued. The problem is, is that chart is pretty ugly. And I want to know why that is. If earnings are still expected to increase, and yes, analysts have been downgrading those uh, those expectations recently. The big question is, why is that? And last quarter, it looks like they had Bad earnings. Revenue only grew 33%, which is the worst performance of revenue growth since September of 2019. And earnings were down 83%. Only two cents in earnings for uh, the the latest quarter. So that's really the biggest issue. It looks like their earnings, uh, earnings were bad. They have a class action lawsuit. I just don't love this, to be honest with you. I just don't like the trend of the business, uh, but it is relatively cheap. If they are going to make a dollar, even though they made two cents last year or last quarter, and it's just to still make a dollar for 2022, that means it's relatively cheap. Let me look at the long-term profitability. It's only been around uh, since 2018. It's fairly profitable. Uh, negative free cash flow since then, so I don't like that. Um, I just don't have a lot of clarity here. It doesn't get me excited. I I like to understand the business a little bit more. Um, Yeah, I'm going to kind of pass on it. It it looks cheap, but I've often seen these type of companies in a very competitive space, which is a broker for insurance policies. Uh, They oftentimes, especially when an IPO, inflate their overall business, make things look better than they really are. Uh, so they can get a high valuation. And now you've seen this is really a broken IPO. A lot of insiders probably uh, dipped uh, and, and sold their shares. So something I'd be watching, but because it continues in the downtrend, I'm going to pass on it. Thanks for the call, or thanks for the review, excuse me. That was uh, Micah 
on iTunes. 888-99-CHART, 888-992-4278 is how you get through and ask your questions. Let's talk about investor returns versus the returns that are reported on uh, from mutual funds, ETFs, etc. And this is a great study done by Morningstar. And what they find is that the average return somebody gets from buying into these uh, mutual funds and ETFs over the 10 years ending December 31st, 2020, so the end of last year, was about 1.7% less than the total return the fund generated over that span. So about a sixth of the total return were lost simply due to bad timing. And what was most interesting is that underneath the surface, there's some nuance to this. And what it's telling you is, is a few things, namely alternative and sector funds fare much worse than average, that, and that pulls down kind of the, the whole aggregate. If you're just looking at U.S. equity and bond, and bond funds, they fared much better, broad-based type of funds. The gap was only one percentage point per year as opposed to 1.7. Well, where were the big differences? It was under al- the allocation funds did the best. So these are funds that have mixes of stocks and bonds, various asset classes. They only underperformed the dollar-weighted total returns. Uh, by 69 basis points over that 10 years. But alternative funds, those that are uh, that have kind of unique strategies, private equity, things like that, uh, that lost four percentage points per year over what those total uh, returns are. And then sector funds, same thing. So it shows you that people are chasing returns and chasing these sector ideas, all right? 888-99-CHART, this is Invest Talk ebay motors is here for the ride remember when you first saw the potential and then through some elbow grease fresh installs and a whole lot of love you transformed a hundred thousand miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own look to your left look to your right it is official no one's got a ride like this there's nothing else that sounds like feels like or looks like the set of wheels in your garage With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the Internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments 
to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's Attack Resistance Platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com. HackerOne.com. You are listening to Invest Talk. It's Thursday, and there's no doubt that the COVID-19 pandemic has caused financial disruptions around the world. But you've got an asset portfolio to protect and grow. So you've got finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is here, and he's taking your calls live. 888-99-CHART. I want to follow up on what I was talking about with uh, the mutual funds and ETFs and and where the biggest mistakes are that people make. And and it really comes down to those alternative funds, like I said, and the sector funds, and which means that uh, the, the actual returns that people got from those funds, dollar weighted, meaning how much money was in at any given time in calculating that. Uh, and basically he says that, well, there's more money when uh, the things were going down uh, than when it was going up. And so it lagged by four percentage points for both the alternative and the sector funds. And it just shows that people are chasing returns. And the more volatile the fund is, the more trouble investors tend to have capturing the full return of those funds over time. The most volatile quintile, so the top 25% of U.S. stock funds that an annual return gap of 1.7 percentage points over those 10 years, while the least volatile quintile had a gap of only 0.9%. And that's really the issue here is that people like to chase returns. So what can you do? Keep things simple. Stick with broad diversified funds if you're going to go with funds. And that's okay. If you're, if you're, you know, for us, we invest our clients' money in individual Companies, individual bonds, etc. But if you aren't, if you want to just buy ETFs, mutual funds, you don't want to do the deep work, that's fine as well. But make sure you stick with broad, diversified funds. Another is automatic routine for rebalancing and and targeting uh, particular positions. This is what I kind of said yesterday on the show: is you need to have a target allocation that you are allocating towards over time, whether that's when you add new positions or you trim positions or you rebalance positions, you need to have a broad goal. And then avoid narrowly focused funds. And I know a lot of people call up, what do you think of this uh, robotics ETF or uh, this green energy fund? And more often than not, when that sector is hot and the most interesting and the, and the average person finds it uh, like, oh, I'm going to make riches there. It's already the sentiment is already overly bullish, and the price of those equities are typically very expensive. And most people are putting money in when things are expensive as opposed to when things are cheap. So focus on broad funds, not the narrowly focused ones. And then embrace techniques that put investment decisions on autopilot. Uh, that's another way of talking about maybe dollar cost averaging, things like that, that can improve your returns over time. So this is all about funds in general. Let's go to Helen in Walnut Creek, California, looking for good dividend stocks. How you doing, Helen? 
Hi there. I was wondering how I could find some good dividend-paying stocks. Well, you're going to have to do some research. Uh, there, there are some great tools out there, Morningstar, Finviz. There are some, some um, filter tools over there that you can use to find companies that pay dividends. And when you're looking at good dividend stocks, you want to focus on the company. So many people try to have this narrow focus on what is the current dividend yield. And frankly, that is a very poor way to pick dividend-paying stocks, is chasing that particular yield. Because remember, dividends are not sacrosanct. They can be cut, eliminated uh, at any time. So there's nothing that is sacred about those dividends that have, might have been paid in the past. So make sure that the businesses that you are investing in are growing, uh, have good balance sheets, and have strong, consistent businesses, good profitability underlying the, that dividend. And so that they can not only pay that, that current dividend consistently over time, but hopefully grow it over time as well. So those are the parameters that you have to look at when you are trying to focus on dividend-paying stocks. So hope that helps in some way. There are a lot of great tools out there. If you have a TD Ameritrade account, Thinkorswim is a great tool as well uh, that you can do some great research. So there, there, there's a lot of free, very good research out there. You just have to uh, be able to go and analyze it correctly. Data is one thing. Data is everywhere. We're in the age of information. Data, interest rates, uh, dividend yields, profitability metrics, all those are easy to understand. What is more difficult is understanding the industry, understanding the leverage that company might have uh, on its balance sheet, the leadership within the business, within the industry, um, uh, understanding financial leverage, operating leverage, what risks there are to the business as a whole, maybe it's currencies, maybe it's the cost of inputs, uh, etc. So those qualitative factors are probably the hardest thing for most people to learn over time. And I hope all of that helps and hope you find some great good dividend stocks. If you need more help, send us a message to investtalk.com. We can discuss it further off air. Now let's make it two in a row. And here's another caller question from 888 chart Hey, Steve or Justin. This is Bob from Cleveland, Ohio here. I was looking at a stock, a bigger symbol, K-O-S, with energy. Uh, it's a little play on oil. They're pretty low. They don't make money, I know. But I'm wondering if they'll bounce back up into that 350 range. Uh, they're trading at $2.38. I might appreciate it, and I'll listen to your answer on the podcast. Thank you. All right, this is Cosmos Energy. K-O-S is the symbol Fairly small company for the energy patch, only uh, about a billion dollar market cap. It's been trending down for a long period of time. It looks like they have a good amount of debt on their balance sheet as well, about $2 billion in debt. And they're not very profitable. If you look at their long-term profitability metrics, return on assets, return on equity, uh, it's been the almost negative almost every year for the last decade. And so to me, this is not a company I want to be owning or, or have any interest in owning um, because they're just bleeding cash over time in an industry that it tends to be very, very profitable. And I think one of the issues here is that they have their, their, pro, their, their oil uh, properties are in far off regions, it looks like. So um, I'm going to pass on Cosmos Energy. I don't like the long-term profitability. And there's so many very profitable, very well-run oil companies out there. Why mess with something that 
has his history of poor profitability. Just move on, find some bigger names that pay consistent dividends and have consistent cash flows. Now, there's no denying that the year is zipping by. Yep, Labor Day is Monday, and this reminds me to remind you that if you're having trouble understanding what's going on in the market, your strategy, your risk tolerance level, uh, whether your risk in your portfolio matches your risk tolerance level, your goals, these are all things that you have to understand and think about and have a grasp on. And that's what we do with uh, our clients over at KPP Financial, where we practice independent thinking and shared success there as well. So we provide unbiased guidance and parallel investing, which means we invest right alongside our clients. So if you need help understanding where you're at, understanding where you're going, developing a strategy, meeting your goals, all of these things are what we discuss on our free portfolio review assessments via telephone or go to meetings. I have them almost every day. And you can send us a message through investtalk.com or call our KPP Financial Office in Irvine, California at 800-557-5461. We can speak for a short period of time, see where you're at, see where portfolio is at, see where your strategy is, what your goals are, and see how we can help in any way. Thanks for, the, thanks for all of you. And we're going to pivot now to what is a very important overarching theme of the investment markets, the economy uh, right now, and it has to do with high debt levels and current financial repression that requires basically permanently low interest rates. And a lot of people will say, this is crazy. We've never been here before. And uh, you know what's going to happen? Well, newsflash, we've actually been here before. 1945, post-World War II, the debt situation in the US, Europe, etc. were very similar. And the policies that the Fed and other central banks implemented were also very similar. At the end of World War II, U.S. short-term rates were pegged at below 1%. The 10-year Treasury it was just at over 2%. And the Federal Reserve acquired bonds directly from the Department of the Treasury. Right now, we go through some mechanism where they issue the shares, the primary dealer, issue the bonds, the primary dealers, and then the, the, the Fed buys it from the primary dealers. It, it's kind of doesn't make any sense. And it just allows those primary dealers, JP Morgans and big banks of the world to, to make profit when uh, we could just have the money go directly to the Fed. But anyway, so back then, America's debt peaked at about 120% of GDP. Now we're about 130. So very similar situation. And for between 1945 and 1980, you had negative real rates for decades. And this was the form of the financial repression, the US, the UK, with public debts nearly 3% of GDP a year. That's what it reduced. Sorry, that reduced public debt by nearly 3% a year. So what you had was this slow erosion. You had uh, the, the, the GDP going up and inflation going up as well, but the cost to carry that debt and the growth of that debt was very negligible. And so as the economy grew, the debt to GDP ratio started to fall by about 3% per year. And by the early 80s, it went from 120% debt to GDP here in the US to 30%. Okay. And slowly, we've been building that up. And, 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 and obviously, COVID kind of had this big whoosh higher in our, in our debt to GDP. And the Fed is playing the same game, laying out the same roadmap, 
U.S. non-financial debt at the end of last year reached a record high, nearly three times GDP, according to the Bank of International Settlements. And so America's public debt has made that round trip. But quantitative easing, in effect, involves replacing longer-term sovereign debt, so longer-term bonds, with short-term debt issued by the central bank that basically yields next to nothing. And so this is what you should expect. And the question is, how do you handle it? How do you handle this as an investor? Well, first, you should expect inflation to stay relatively high. And it's possible if the government operates efficiently, effectively, no guarantee, but they invest in the economy so that it can grow at above inflation levels, then over time, they can whittle that down. It took them 25, sorry, 35 years to do it before. What's to say they can't do it for another three decades? And who would be the biggest loser in this situation? Well, government creditors. In 1946, a bear market in the U.S., treasuries uh, commenced uh, that lasted Oh, sorry, the, a bear market in the U.S. Treasuries commenced that lasted 35 years, from 46 to 81. And U.K. gilt, so U.K. bonds, lost 40% of their purchasing power over that time because their real returns were negative. And if you have 1%, 2%, 3% negative returns every single year over uh, uh, decades, that can be very, very eroding to your, personal, your purchasing power. And that's what they're going to try to execute again. And you need to be prepared for this. Now, what can you do? Well, you can replace treasuries with uh, higher yielding bonds, corporates, for example. Uh, You could buy gold and precious metals uh, to replace that, which typically does well when you have negative real rates. Now, equities are not directly hurt by financial repression, but if you, and you look in history from 1945, the stocks did pretty well. But back then, stocks were actually cheap post-World War II. Now they're kind of expensive. So we're in a little bit, little bit different of a situation, but you can see the playbook that is going to be implemented by governments. And so you need to be prepared with your portfolio and understand how to operate in that, this new environment, which is extreme financial repression and trying to dig our way out of this debt slowly year by year. Now, as you may have noticed, we get invest talk questions about stocks, market processes, terms, definitions, dynamics, and so on. So let's play a sample now. Hi, my question is regarding risk. If I invest in a more risky or aggressive mutual fund, is it only considered risky in the short term? For example, if I invest in a risk, uh, aggressive mutual fund, it would be considered risky if I had to sell it in three or four years but less risky if I had to sell it in 20 to 30 years. I'm assuming that's the case. I just wanted to see if if that's true. Thanks a lot. Bye. Well, technically, yes, because the more risk you take, uh, you should have higher returns over time. And over decades, those higher returns will build up and you should be fine. Uh, the issue is that can you handle that level of volatility? I know recently we, we, we had the bout with COVID and, and the downturn in the market quickly and suddenly, but it was fairly short-lived and uh, some people panicked. And you should look at yourself in the mirror and say, did I panic in that time? Was I considering panicking? Even if I didn't, 
Right? What happens if it went another down 5 or 10%? Would you have panicked then? And that's the nature of equity investing and, and investing in high-risk investments as a whole. Is you never know when that risk will rear its ugly head. And just because you might have invested in something that is risky and it didn't go down over the period that you're holding it doesn't mean you didn't take that risk. Okay. So you're right over the long term, the higher risk funds, so for example, small caps over large caps will outperform. History says that, and it makes a lot of sense. There's more upside for small caps than there is uh, large caps. And that's just the nature of the investing uh, world. Um, but yes, if you have a long time horizon, the more risk you should take. And that's why I say younger people should take more risk because they have time to hold through the downturns because they're not retiring anytime soon. That's why you want to, when you get closer to retirement, you want to start to think about the type of risk you're taking and whether you should lower that risk overall. And if you need help with that, reach out to me. This is Invest Talk. I'm Justin Klein. We have one goal here to help you achieve financial freedom. And our work continues after this final break. So get your questions in now at 888 chart You are listening to Invest Talk. We've seen the markets go up, then down, sideways, and around. It's called volatility. And if you're a serious investor, you'll have finance and investment questions for Justin Klein. He's here now taking your calls live. Invest Talk, 888-99-CHART. Hi, Stephen Justin. This is Jeffrey calling from El Paso, Texas. I was wondering if I could get your thoughts on Vodafone, ticker Victor Oscar Delta. It's a UK-based multinational telecom company. Uh, recently, Steve expressed a very bullish view on Orange, which is a, a competitor to this company. And I was wondering if uh, you think Vodafone has a similar risk-reward profile to uh, Orange. Currently, I own both uh, stocks. Thank you. All right, looking at Vodafone, the yield about 6.2% currently based on the current price. Now, remember, this is a foreign name, so they actually pay twice a year, not quarterly. So you, uh, they pay, looks like, in December and then June. And this is one of the largest wireless carriers in the world, 270 million wireless customers. Germany is about 30% of total sales, UK 13, then you have Italy, Spain, uh, so many different countries, very well diversified. They have operations in India, Australia, Netherlands, so extremely large. And you're really buying it for that yield because they're their growth is very, very modest. Now they had uh, kind of a gyration of earnings sales in 20 and 21. Uh, but this year they're supposed to make a dollar 24, dollar 46 next year. And it's a $17 stock. So it's not trading at high multiples, but once again, it, it's operating within mature markets that are not growing very fast. And therefore it's not super exciting. It's profitability is pretty solid. You look at its return on equity over the long term. Uh, it's fairly up and down, but uh, it's not that great. It's in the low single digits on average over the last decade. So I'm going to really pass on Vodafone. The chart doesn't look great. It's now below the 200-day moving average and has stayed there for a while. Um, so I'm not excited about Vodafone. I'm going to pass. Now, lastly, let's talk a bit about Ponzi, Charles Ponzi. You know, he is the, the name brand in financial cons. I don't know if you know this, but he's born in Italy. Uh, he moved to the U.S. 
and found his way, uh, actually sorry, started in Canada, then moved to the U.S. And he started his first, his first uh, stint in being, or, uh, being a criminal was check forgery, landed him in prison for three years. But once he got out, he started another con called Postal Arbitrage. And what he did was, he could, in theory, one could purchase international reply coupons. These are kind of pre-posted stamps and return them to the U.S. for profit. And because you can buy them in foreign uh, currencies, the, the value of the dollar is relatively stronger. It was really a currency arbitrage. You can use cheaper currency to go buy these uh, these um, IRCs, what they call them, and then bring them back to the U.S. and make a profit. Well, he started a company, ironically, it's called the Securities Exchange Company, not, uh, not to be confused with the SEC. Uh, and he started bringing in a bunch of money, a lot of investors, uh, saying that they would double their money in 90 days. Okay, And many of those people were saying, I want to reinvest in the, the, the scheme uh, because the reported results were so good. And slowly and slowly, regulators started to worry that maybe uh, his risk to the financial system could be very high because he had bought a bank. Because he had brought in so much money, he couldn't get proper banking because the millions of dollars he was bringing in, which at that time was a very large amount of money. Remember, this is the 19-teens, 1920s. And so regulators started circling. And he claimed his business secrets were proprietary. And that was after a report in Barron's that talked about how he had – to, to make his scheme work – there would have to be 160 million postal reply coupons in circulation. But in reality, there are only 27,000 in circulation. So it was impossible for him to invest this much money in this type of strategy because there weren't enough postal reply coupons to, to execute it. And basically, his reply was, well, we're proprietary. Well, this connects today because Tether and Bitfinex were in court this week. And they claimed the same type of thing, that their proprietary, they have proprietary secrets that are too valuable to be revealed. And so when you have that, when you say, oh, my secrets are, uh, are you can't, I can't reveal them because they're proprietary. I don't want anyone else to steal them. That is a giant red flag that they are committing some type of fraud. And that's why it looks like Tether continues to be a fraud. I'm Justin Klein. This completes another Invest Talk program. Steve Peasley and I thank you for listening. We encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads. Now over 34 million. And you can get yours for free anytime over at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And always be sure to rate and review on iTunes. And if you leave a question with your rating, we will prioritize your answers. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, it's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them specifically. Nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell securities. Such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis, and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. Invest Talk is a copyrighted program of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor, which retains all rights. For more information regarding KPP's investment advisors, call 1 800 557 
1-800-926-5461. Steve Peasley is president and Justin Klein chief executive officer of Klein Pavlis Peasley Financial. And they thank you for listening and welcome your comments or questions on our 24-hour listening line at 888-99-CHART.